Education freedom is a simple yet revolutionary idea. We should fund the students, not the system. The noble work of education, of public education, happens in more places than government-run, union-controlled public schools. And welcome back to The Narrative. Mike Andrews, Aaron Baer, and David Mahan joining you for another episode to talk about the happenings in Ohio and the nation and giving you our perspective on some of the biggest news stories of the past week. And certainly we always want to keep tabs on the legislation that we're promoting and driving over in the Ohio State House. And while it wasn't necessarily a friendly hearing from our side on the SAFE Act this week, uh, we did have some movement there with opponent testimony. And David, I know you were keeping tabs on that. It was uh, it was quite a day over in the state house earlier this week. Yeah, it was it was an exciting one, Mike. Um, it was opposition testimony, but it really ended up in our favor. Um, you had several community folks. Um, There's about two and a half hours, I think, uh, assigned to it. Yeah, you had community folks in there. But the big story uh, of the day was Children's Hospital Association came in. And uh, and um, they didn't get the treatment, you know, the the, the kid gloves that, that they got last committee uh, or last year. They they got a serious committee and um, they got grilled. So the, the first question that came out was uh, Representative Stewart uh, basically said, do you all perform uh, surgeries uh, on, on children? Because we know based on a Channel 4 story that uh, that it is going on in the state of Ohio. And, uh, and these are, these are transgender surgeries on kids just so we're clear, yes. right? This is P- pediatric, right? Uh, sex change procedures on children, um, uh, you know, under 18. So they, they said, no, we don't, we don't perform surgeries. Oh, well, then he said, well, do you, do you refer, um, out to, to those that do? And then, I mean, they, she just tripped all over, all over herself and, 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 you know, after about five or 10 minutes, uh, the, the, the chair basically jumped in, uh, representative lips and, and said, basically, um, you are dodging the question. Um, if it's not referrals, what is it? <laughs> and, uh, and they basically admitted, yes, we do have a list of resources. And if that's what they need, then we do give them those resources. Uh, it was amazing. But then there was another question of, do you condone? You know, if there's a 15-year-old child, um, do you condone, condone the, the cutting off of of their genitals uh, for the purpose of treating their gender dysphoria? And she said no. And I think that stunned the whole room because children's hospitals all across the country lead the way in, in this kind of stuff. And uh, so it was good to get them on record saying, one, we do not condone uh, uh the the uh, you know sex change procedures surgeries on children, but we do refer for them. <laughs> just just the double minded man. It, it is. I, I, my thing with these guys, Mike, is you know they they have been operating in the shadows for so long. In 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 innuendo, I I, I you know in 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 my uh, uh, my. Lack of self-control. I, I once again got into a back and forth with Planned Parenthood's Twitter account, um, and because they were they were celebrating uh, transgender surgeries, uh, particularly on kids. And you know, whenever they talk about you know their their transgender medicine, they always use 
either stock photography of people walking around and looking smiley and all that, or they use cartoons of people, right? Right. Because they don't want to show, you know, what it looks like to have skin trimmed off your legs or your arm to make a, you know, make genitalia for yourself, right? right? They they don't they don't want to they don't want to show what these things actually look like because it's 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 brutal, um, and then they they come before committee, uh, and they've they've got some pretty high priced lobbyists that that know how to dodge and weave with the best of them. Oh, yeah. Um, but, but God bless Brian Stewart and, and representative lips and a number of these folks, you know, Brian's an attorney. So, uh, he, he, <laughs> he knows he, he's done a deposition or two. Uh, he, he knows how to fire questions off, uh, and did a really great job of, of kind of pinning them to the wall. Between this and the, and the 60% work that he's put in. And I mean, I've got hours of just watching that guy. I'm ready. You know, Brian Stewart for president. I'm <laughs> just saying. <laughs> well, Aaron, to your point in t- talking about the way that, that they're kind of saying the the quiet part out loud on some of this stuff, yeah. we saw it not only in Ohio, but I think there was a story out of Seattle this week, too, where, where they basically admitted that uh, one of the things that they're recommending in that hospital now is that you go through these fertility treatments um, before you undergo transgender surgery. And it's like, oh, no, they're they're totally reversible. Everything about this is reversible. But we're also going to protect your fertility by adding on this extra service that's got this huge upfront cost and these yearly fees to maintain your your DNA should you ever choose to want to have children down the road after you undergo these procedures. Wait a minute. We've been told that this is completely and totally reversible. Yeah. And same thing that we heard over at the state houses week. They're they're saying the thing out loud that we're saying, but yet they they put this spin on it and it's just, oh no, that's just part of the standard of care. It's like, yeah. no, this is the part that we're saying is the issue. Yeah. So so nationwide children's hospital, I'm on their page right now. What causes fertility issues? Some medical conditions or treatments can cause long-term fertility and reproductive health issues. The impact on fertility may happen as soon as certain treatments begin and can become more significant as children age. These conditions or treatments may include transgender. Screenshot that right now before they scrub it. It's right you know, there. They're like, these guys are like, print that off and let's run a billboard ad on that. Like they, they just, at, at, what's funny is that we also know since we introduced this bill last General Assembly, Nationwide Children's has scrubbed their website of a lot of stuff that's not up there anymore, yeah. right? They, they, Every they, time there's a hearing where they come in, we get them with something and they scrub it. Exactly, it's gone, right? Their their links to porn, uh, that 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 that's that, that David found a while ago. That that's been taken down and and well, and Mike, you just touched on something that that's so key on this, which is, um, you know, and for a lot of folks, the the surgeries are the things that are 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 so you know, eye popping you know, for lack of a better phrase, like that, that are so grotesque and, and they get a lot of attention. But I, I think w- when we're talking about the puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, I, I've been saying more and more, those from a public policy standpoint, those are actually more damaging than the surgeries. Um, because ultimately there are so many folks, you know, can understand, okay, surgery is irreversible. Right. This is locking me into something for the rest of my life. Um, but on the cross sex hormones and puberty blockers, the way the doctors talk about them all the time to, to kids and to families 
is this is reversible, right? So you, you can get out of this if you want. And that's a lie, right? And, and this is the path that, that, that folks get started at. And so way more people start going down that path than will ever go down the, uh, the surgery path. And so it's why on a bill like the SAFE Act, we say we got to do both at the same time. Because the the hormones and the puberty blockers are 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 so damaging and so much more prevalent um, than than the others, and and we're downplaying what what the act, what they all do, and so so the damage is far greater though through them because so many more families will will go down that path. Yeah, it's it's kind of like um, you know you can once you stop puberty, they, you know puberty happens in stages, and you can't make up those stages. Um, right. Yeah, it has to happen in order. Uh, just lying to families and they're finally getting caught. And that's part of what we're trying to do here is just shed light onto these things and make sure that people are equipped to talk about them. And obviously, fellas, anybody who follows us knows that, that we're trying to connect faith with the, the public policy realm, faith in politics and, and Christian engagement in the in the public sphere. And along those lines, I want to pivot to a pretty big story that came out um at least in the evangelical world, toward the end of last week. And that was the passing of noted um, pastor and author Tim Keller. And if I could, just for a minute, um, I, I'm i not one to eulogize public figures or men that I've never met, um, but I was very heavy-hearted to hear about Tim Keller's passing. He was somebody that I found to be very influential in my own Christian growth, Um just benefited tremendously from his teaching, from his work, um, from his intellectual engagement uh, with with major cultural issues. And he unlocked, uh, or I guess I should say the Holy Spirit through Tim Keller unlocked a different dimension of my faith that I am truly and deeply thankful for. Um, and Aaron, I know we, we've had conversations too. You've mentioned Tim Keller's prayer book a few times about how that's helped you. And and I know he was a, was an influence on on you as well. And even as we can acknowledge that, there are probably some areas that uh, that we disagree with him on, especially when it came to the to the area of public engagement and being involved politically as a Christian. Yeah, and and I think you know this is one of these things with with someone like like Tim Keller. Um, you know, we need to be able to step back and um, first and foremost, one give give glory to God that that. Um, you know, another brother in Christ is, is in glory, um, and is, is, um, you know, he's no longer in the pain that he's been suffering. So we thank that, but, but also to, to just acknowledge the amazing work God did through Tim, you know, he, he, he is going to be one of these, one of these leaders that a, a generation from now, uh, people are going to remember as a, as a, you know, really a. I don't know a, a saint and, and a, a landmark in in Christian history because of his work, um, you know his book Meaning of Marriage and um, his book on the problem of evil uh, and uh, and and just being able to you know not necessarily bring uh, you know the, in the lens of Ecclesiastes there's nothing new under the sun but he was able to for a generation take um, really big questions of God. Um, and communicate and connect with people in such a meaningful way. And I, I know so many people who are believers today because of the ministry of Tim Keller. 
Um, and you, you mentioned his, his prayer book. Uh, I, I'll just, I'll commend that to everyone that, you know, I, I've been a, a believer, uh, for, you know, the better part of 20 years. Um, and it, it wasn't until really three, four years ago that I read his prayer book, that prayer really clicked for me. Um, and, and it was because of what God did through him. And so, um, I, I just praise God, uh, for the life and ministry of Tim Keller. Praise God that, Amen. that we got to, um, you know, we, we have a repository of his writings and, 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 and sermons online. Now, um, you, you see the fruits of his labor. Um, yeah, we, we, we also disagreed with uh, some of his things at the end of his life, um, on, you know, his, his view on critical theory and, uh, his, his view on, um, on really Christian engagement, especially on issues like abortion. I, I just thought he was way off on those types of things. Um, but at the end of the day, if we can uh, look at someone like Luther um, or look at somebody like, uh, you know, like uh, Jonathan Edwards, um, who had massive blind spots on issues of race uh, or anti-Semitism in Luther's case, and be able to say, you know what, but they made some incredible contributions. I, I think we need to be able to do the same thing with Tim Keller to say, yeah, you know what, he, he just missed the boat on, on some. I think he was just wrong on this. Um, but on, on these other very important issues, uh, he was a, a, a blessing and a light, um, and, a, a just a, a real force for good for the, the world, I think is, uh, is something we need to be able to do, right? That we're, 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 we're people that can live in that tension and celebrate, uh, the good. And always to be engaging with ideas and not yes. just dismissing the contributions of a person because there may be areas that we don't line up. Uh, I, I think that that's robbing us individually as believers and the church universal of of some really great teaching and opportunities for growth if we throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater on those things. That's right. That's right. That, that, that's exa- And again, that that is, you know, you know, every biblical, you know, character, bi- historical biblical person uh, outside of Jesus, if we're going to, uh, if we're going to learn from them and celebrate them from Moses to David, to Paul, to Peter, you're, you're going to have a lot of stuff that you're, you're going to have to say, yeah, you know, they were wrong here, but my goodness, look what the Lord used through, through them, uh, in, in these other places. And, and you and we, if we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're there's going to be plenty of that with us that we pray our kids do with us, right. Uh, is, is take the good stuff and toss out the, the bad. Yeah, that that Aaron Bear guy's got no taste in sports teams. That's <laughs> he gets the gospel stuff right. We can trust him go. on the church issues, but we got to throw out the sports side of things. That's right. That's as it comes fair, we just can't we can't abide by that. Um, as we wrap up the the news segment here, Aaron, I know we've got uh, a call to action for the state of Ohio. We've talked numerous times throughout the spring last week about the the various ballot issues that are coming up with the special election coming up in August. And we really want to make sure that the church is mobilized, engaged, and ready to go, uh, especially for that August 8th special election that will decide if we are going to elevate the threshold to amend the Constitution up to 60%. And to do that, we're looking for people in every county in the state of Ohio, all 88 counties, to get involved and to, and to help us out. And I want to turn the, turn the floor over to you to, to see if we can rally some people to come alongside us in helping this initiative. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the the baseline on this, Mike, uh, you know, in in Michigan when they had their abortion initiative up, the most disturbing thing we heard was how many 
uh, churches weren't aware this issue was on the ballot, right? Um, and so, you know, what what we have said is we are not going to allow a single church in the state of Ohio to say they didn't know about both the abortion initiative, but especially 60%. Um, and we, I think I said this last week, but actually August 8th in many ways is more important than November 7th um, because August 8th protects our constitution for good and helps us keep this abortion initiative out for good on top of a whole lot of other issues, right? Um, and so uh, we are uh, recruiting volunteers from all over the state to become a county captain. Um, it's something that you could be if you're a pastor or a ministry leader or just a, a stay-at-home mom or a, a, a retiree or a student. Uh, and you're going to say, I'm going to be a part of CCB's effort to make sure every church in the state gets a call to say, this issue's coming up. Will you do voter registration? Would you like voter materials to tell people about this? And would you help drive people to the polls? Right. If, if we just get the churches in Ohio to turn out to vote in this August 8th election and vote yes, we win. It's that easy. Um, and, and this is going to be what we're going to be carrying all over the state. And we've already recruited a number of county captains, but we need more than one person in every county. We need multiple people. And, you know, Sam on our on our team and Nalani are are helping lead this effort. Um, and, and we're coming alongside people to help you get people praying get people registering people to vote in their churches uh, and get getting people uh, educated. And, and, and we're going to be doing that primarily through our, our pledge to vote website, ccv.org slash pledge, uh, where people can make, take the pledge to vote. Uh, and if they're not registered, get registered. Um, and, and, and so if you're interested in this, just um, go to ccv.org slash county captains and, and fill out the form there. Uh, that's ccv.org slash county captains. Or you could even just email info at ccv.org and say you're interested. But we need you, right? People ask all the time, what can I do to help? Right now, you can become a county captain and you can be a part of the effort to, to call every church, to you know host events, uh, do events at churches and, and, and work tables to get people registered to vote uh, and get them voter education materials. This is, this is the ball game right now and CCV is going to be leading the charge. And, and worth mentioning, too, for anyone out there who may be interested in in joining us in this, it, it does sound like it's a big lift. But here's the thing. We're resourcing you for this. And and we've got this infrastructure in place that we're going to we're going to be here for you. We're going to help you walk through the process and, and let you know the, kind of the milestones that you need to hit. And realistically, it's going to be very manageable with the way that we've broken things down. Sam's doing a great job of of organizing it, as you said, Aaron, and. Um, this is something that that anyone who's passionate about the life issue can jump in and do and and ultimately know that they made a huge impact on the outcome of of these elections this year. That's right. That's right. Well, as we uh, wrap up the new segment here, we're we're going to have another special segment of our interview this week. It's not actually an interview, but as we did last week with Vice President Pence, we listened to his gala speech. This week, we're going to hear from Betsy DeVos, who joined us for our Columbus Gala earlier this month. And one of the real champions of school choice uh, throughout the country and throughout her public career was a blessing to have her with us in Columbus. She's got some great things to say uh, about the opportunities, educational opportunities for all children. And it was one of those conversations that we just couldn't keep it to ourselves. We wanted to share it with everybody on the narrative. So we want to invite you to stick around and hear everything that, that Betsy DeVos said to us at our Columbus Gala. It'll be coming up right after this. Hey, Narrative listeners. You know, Christians in the marketplace today face more unique and challenging threats than ever before. 
Businesses are following woke capitalism. Chambers of commerce are beholden to social justice. And secular activists are chipping away Christians' First Amendment rights. As Ohio's only Christian Chamber of Commerce, the Christian Business Partnership stands in the gap to advocate for, to educate, and to celebrate Christian business owners. Joining the partnership also allows businesses to provide their employees with health care insurance, workers' compensation, and exclusive banking and educational discounts. To find out more and to join, go to cbpohio.org. That's cbpohio.org. Thank, thank you so much, Colleen, for that very, very kind introduction and for your very warm welcome here this evening. It really is a blessing to be among people who seek well for their neighbors by advocating for public policy that reflects the truth of the gospel. I really, really appreciate that mission statement. Uh, one of those great gospel truths is that we do to others as we would have done to us. Or... Um, as I recall the words of one of my favorite Bible verses, Micah 6, verse 8, to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That does guide much of what I do in my life, as I'm sure it does in all of yours. But it particularly guides how I think of the policy issue that's animated my life's work, education freedom. My husband Dick and I knew very early on that we were going to be able to send our children to whatever school was going to be best for each of them, particularly one that shared our family's faith and values. But as a young mom touring schools, I quickly encountered that that was not true for, anyone, for everyone. And uh, as some of you heard a little earlier this evening, that injustice, really realizing that injustice in a very tangible way was the turning point for me. How could so many children be denied the opportunity to access a quality education simply because of where they grew up or their family's personal life circumstances? So I knew from 41 year, well, 35 years ago when my son Rick started kindergarten that I had to be part of that, part of change. Thankfully, we know that change is happening now very quickly across America today. What was a long, long time in coming has accelerated dramatically. Education freedom's on the march. From Arizona to Arkansas, from Utah to Florida, Iowa to South Carolina. It's advancing in your neighboring states. In West Virginia, every single student there can now benefit from education freedom. And soon the same will be true in North Carolina. Indiana, just today, put the finishing touch on legislation to do much the same. Now, I wish I could say the same of my home state of Michigan, but that is a different story for a different day. Though I suspect most of you uh, Buckeyes are all too happy to uh, be able to pick on Michigan, at least on the policy front. I was really proud and honored to be able to be part of bringing the first school choice programs in Ohio to life many years ago, and I'm delighted to be back tonight to help encourage and push important and needed expansions across the finish line this year. Governor DeWine and the legislative leaders deserve our gratitude for taking strong stands for students. And it's just a joy to see my longtime friends, Lieutenant Governor Husted and Senate President Huffman, and um, I think back to those days many, many, many years ago now, 
um, when we were feeling like we were pushing rocks uphill. But I'm excited, excited to see what's happening here in, in Ohio. And to all the legislators here today, this evening, um, and particularly to the bill sponsors, thank you so much for the work that you're doing to advance opportunity for every child in Ohio because everyone does deserve education freedom and we have to make sure to bring it to as many kids this year as possible. <clears throat> when it comes to education funding, I've used the analogy of a backpack for a long, long time. So it's ha I I'm really thrilled to see the backpack concept being carried through here and I love the little cards. Very, very cool idea there. Um, so, it, I mean, education freedom is a simple yet revolutionary idea. We should fund the students, not the system. And the noble work of education, of public education, happens in more places than government-run, union-controlled public schools. Uh, it's great to hear about the new Westside Christian School and the expansion of these opportunities into um, logical places that are going to be nurturing wonderful environments for the kids who are going to be able to access them. Doing what's best for each individual child is more important than doing what's best for any bureaucracy. And as my friend Governor Glenn Youngkin famous, famous, famously said, parents do matter. Um, you all know this. You've believed it, you've lived it, and you've advocated for it for a long time. So let me thank you, each of you, not only for what you've done, but for what I know you'll continue to do to make sure that Ohio's rising generation has every opportunity possible. I'm thankful to have the opportunity to be here with you this evening and looking forward to conversation with Aaron, which I enjoy much more than standing up at a microphone and speaking. Thanks. Well, thank you, Secretary Moss Betsy, uh, for, for, for those remarks and for being here with us and, and for all you've done uh, on the education front. We're going to talk a little bit uh, about your book, Hostage, mm -hmm. Hostages No More. Um, but I, I do want to start just on the, uh, on the broad issue um, uh, that I shared a little bit about earlier, which is um, really the, the, the moral and the academic crisis we're facing in education today. Right? And I think for a lot of folks, when, when we start talking about these things, it, it was one of the things with uh, critical theory right away, uh, that folks had a hard time wrapping their minds around, or even when they're seeing the academic scores, they have a hard time wrapping their minds around because it's not, it wasn't their experience with public right. education. Mm -hmm. How did this happen, whether so quickly, or how did we get to this place? What's your diagnosis of what brought us to this place? Well, I think very, very simply, it was um, the way the system reacted and performed through the pandemic that really brought a focus that for many families had never really realized and understood before what was actually going on in their children's schools. For families who had moved to um, districts or areas where the schools were good, paid higher property, uh, you know, higher, higher prices for homes, pay higher property taxes, um, many of them saw, you know, they had, they had a front row seat when their kids were in their kitchens or their living rooms um, on Zoom trying to learn at a distance. And they saw how many of the, the, of the schools just failed dismally at even being responsive to this moment of need and a moment of crisis. 
And then when there were uh, lockdowns and, and shutdowns for months on end, um, that you know exacerbated the problem and and made uh, you know made families even more um, unhappy with uh, with the situation for their kids. And then many of them seeing firsthand curriculum that was being fed to their children that was absolutely antithetical to their own family values um, and saw it you know upfront and personal. Uh, a combination of those things really, I think, set in mo did set in motion um, a, a deluge that, uh, that I, I'm joyfully cheering on, as, yeah. as we are all of us in this room. Um, but I think surprisingly, even to me, is the way that uh, the school unions and all of their allies have continued to double down on this position. And um, you know, as as more than one have observed, I think the biggest friend of education freedom has been Randy Weingarten. Yeah, the president of the teachers. <laughs> the teachers. president of the AFT. Yeah, and uh, even in your book, you, you start off talking about uh, Terry McAuliffe, yeah. uh, who, who the, the Democrat that was running for governor in Virginia, uh, who, who questioned the role of parents in education, and, and that set the storm to allow Glenn Youngkin yeah. uh, to, to to become governor there. Well, I want to. Uh, I've been holding all this because we have had a number of conversations here today, but I've been holding this this part in particular. I want to dive deep into your experience at the, the Department of Education um, because you you still. Oh, you oh you want me to relive I, that? I, 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 sorry, I don't, I don't want it to be too traumatic in, in front of some of your closest friends here. Um, but but I want to dive into because I, I think what your experience there probably will paint a picture of how big the problem is. I think one of the things we struggle with in America today is scale and understanding yeah. the, the, the size of problems. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what was the prevailing view of education and children when, when you stepped into the Federal Department of Education? Well, Aaron, if I could just give a little bit of context to um, what, the, what the Federal Department of Education is and, and was established for. So the department has only existed since 1979. And it was established as a payoff to the teachers' unions for having uh, endorsed Jimmy Carter for president in 1976. It was the first time the teachers' unions endorsed a presidential candidate. And in 1979, he came through on his promise to establish the Federal Department of Education with the express goal of closing the achievement gap the top, between the top performers and the lowest performers. So think about this. Now, 44 years later, and I, can, uh, I was married in 1979, so I know exactly how long it's been. Um, 44 years later, and over $1 trillion spent at the federal level alone with the express goal of closing the achievement gap, not only has the, have achievement gaps not narrowed one little bit, they've actually widened by almost every measure. So you have to keep asking yourself, why, why do we keep doing the same thing and spending more and more and more of our future generation's uh, you know, resources to... Uh, solve a problem that this department has simply been an outright failure at doing. So coming into the department, um, I, I knew it was a large federal bureaucracy, um, had really no idea how difficult it was going to be until we got there and had to start dealing with these more than 4,000 
um, you know, career uh, staff members, a few of whom actually did help to try to advance the agenda that we were trying to implement. But most of them spent every day trying to put impediments in the way of the work that we were trying to do to focus every decision around doing what's right for students. That department is oriented solely around doing what's right for the organizations that feed off of the, the you know, Department of Education's budget, um, starting with the teachers union. So my successor meets monthly with the, head, uh, the heads of both of the major school unions, and um, his personal staff meets bi-weekly with the key staff of the, the school unions. It is a totally different focus. It is not focused on kids or doing the right thing for them. And that is, that is the general drive and bent of that federal agency. So when you're coming into a, a, a job like that, a role like that, that you weren't, you shared earlier, wasn't anything you were ever sort of crossed your mind doing. Um, what were the things that you were hoping, what, what were your main priorities when you came in? And what are the things that you were able to accomplish? And what are the things that you kind of wish you would have had four more years to, to, to take a run at? Well, I, I went there with the hope and the intention of reorienting the discussion around doing the right thing for kids and giving families choices and education freedom. So I was unabashed about doing every, taking every opportunity I could to highlight places that were where families were having choices and where kids were thriving as a result. And um, for advocating those policies that would support parents making those decisions. And, um, and I think, you know, to largely to some success, because I guarantee that if we went into the pandemic not having had the kind of discussion we had had at the federal level around solutions to be kids being shut out of school for months on end, that we wouldn't have the same kind of momentum, I don't think, around education freedom state by state by state. We also um, introduced at the federal level during, just before COVID and then gaining momentum during COVID, a federal tax credit bill that would give rocket fuel to the states that have education freedom programs. That is, uh, been a similar bill has been reintroduced this session and it continues to gain more and more support. I think it's only a matter of time until that actually is implemented at the federal level. And, um, and so I, I, that, was, uh, that was my overarching goal and desire to really return control back to parents and the ability for them to make the right decisions for their kids' educations. And um, you know, the, 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 with the federal government getting out of the way to the largest extent possible under law. Absolutely. Um, I, do, I do want to mention you brought up um, uh, federal tax credit uh, because of uh, a lot of the leaders in this room, uh, particularly Senate President Matt Huffman, uh, in last year's state budget, uh, we passed a state tax credit that's now, mm -hmm. uh, and some of you in here, I know some of us in the room have taken advantage of it in your last uh, state taxes, uh, where you can make a dollar for dollar donation of uh, up to $750 uh, to a scholarship granting organization, SGO, uh, and you actually get back on your state income taxes that exact amount, it's a dollar for dollar tax credit. So it's a donation that doesn't cost you anything. 
The donations that you make tonight, the big donations you're making to CCB tonight, are not the same way. I'm sorry. <laughs> but but you can you can give to the Ohio Christian Education Network SGO, Scholarship Granting Organization, which CCV leads, so kids can attend this, the Christian schools uh, in the OSN network, the 156 uh, Christian schools in the OSN network. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to tell you, it was our first year ever last year. I'm pretty sure we might have been the biggest SGO in the state. Uh, we provided over $1.5 million to over 2,300 kids. That's awesome. That's awesome. So just a little bit more on... Um on the federal tax credit bill, the the proposal was to you, to be able to designate up to 10% of your personal or corporate federal tax bill into scholarship granting organizations, um, and with no limit on the amount. Um, but the 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 overall amount was capped out at five billion dollars to start with. Start to get going. To start That's with, right. yeah. So, Betsy, you have the the thing about you jumping into the. Department of Education was you kind of opened yourself up to a whole new level of attack and scrutiny. Every, everywhere you were going, I feel like just a regular occurrence would be you walking into a school to take a tour and and the, the left, the teachers union standing out there protesting. Yeah. Tell, just tell, tell us about that experience. What what were they trying to accomplish? What was the what was were you ever able to even have conversations to reason with folks and say, hey, what how could you oppose empowering kids to choose a, an education that well, uh, we of course had many of those conversations in um, in rooms that didn't have the protesters uh, yelling, but um, I, I think you know seeing the protesters at nearly every school visit I made and and many other um, public events that I did, it it made me sad overall because I felt as though most of the individuals there really weren't thinking through what it was they were actually doing and why. Um, because if they had, I, 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 can't, I simply cannot imagine how they could defend, first of all, a lot of the things they said, um, but secondly, the reason that they were even there. And I think the, the, the times that really bothered me the most were when um, parents had their young children there and they were just screaming obscenities nonstop at me, um, and, and that was, I, I just thought, those poor children, you know, wh what are you subjecting them to, and for what reason? It was, uh, that was, that was disheartening, but I also, I, I look at, you know, I look at opponents to education freedom as simply individuals who've not yet understood why they need to be supporting education freedom that eventually they'll come around and get there. Yeah, yeah. Even, even I think, maybe Randy Weingarten, maybe. <laughs> no, so I, I, wanna, um, I wanna talk about a, another focus that, that, that you have as well right now, um, <clears throat> which is actually uh, a, a bill that CCV has been backing here in, in Ohio for uh, quite some time. We call it our Save Women's Sports Act. Mm. Um, it's, it's legislation uh, yeah. to uh, the, the, the common sense idea is that girls should not be forced to compete against boys, right? The, the, this, yep. this radical idea that's been on the books in America since Title IX came out uh, that says we have girl sports and we have boy sports. Uh, but today, uh, we have boys competing in girl sports. Why was this something for, where obviously there's still so much work to do on education freedom, why was this something you felt the need to, to jump into to bring your voice to? 
Well, first of all, just to wind back a little further, we did, um, you know, around Title IX and, and the, uh, you know, the guarantee that men and women could have equal access to education and, uh, and, and you know, the downstream of that, uh, women's sports as well, um, it, the, the whole law had been, um, I would say, stretched beyond recognition in an overreach during the, the Obama administration. And what it essentially did was result in kangaroo courts on ca college campuses around matters of sexual misconduct. So we did the, we did the rulemaking, the process to uh, put a framework in place on how education institutions need to navigate these things for the individuals involved and gave uh, a very reliable and fair framework for the individuals involved in those matters. Um, suffice it to say, the Biden administration has taken the work we did and is in the process of trying to undo it completely and go multiple steps further than the Obama administration had, uh, including expanding the definition of sex, which most of us here, I think maybe all of us would say, um, is, has to do with a man and a woman, um, and exp expanding that definition to the extent that it would essentially I believe, negate women's sports because, as we know, in many cases, men are competing on women's teams, winning, and, um, and you know, really calling into question the whole uh, reason for Title IX in the first place, the, the law uh, allowing women to have equal opportunity and access. So this is, a, this is an issue that is gonna to come to a head here in the next couple of months. The, they're gonna come out with the, their final version of the rule. And, um, and I, 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 don't, I, I don't think, I know we have not heard the end of it. There will be a lot of uh, resulting litigation, but what is uh, most concerning is this continued trend to say, it's perfectly fine for a biological male who identifies as a woman to compete on any women's team. Uh, I was a swimmer myself, a competitive swimmer. I was a good swimmer, but not a great one. I guarantee you I would not have been in the pool at 6 or 7 a.m. in the cold water through the winter months if I knew not only was I going to have to compete against really strong female swimmers, but also male swimmers. So I, I think it will just put, if, if it is upheld in any way, ultimately, it will, it will destroy women's sports. And um, so I, I think uh, it is a worthy fight to keep having, fighting against it. Absolutely, amen. <laughs> Two quick thoughts on, on that. Some of you might have seen, it's a pretty famous picture now of uh, his name is William Thomas. He goes by Leah Thomas, but the mm. picture of the, the swimmer standing yeah. with the trophy, the first place NCAA trophy, and then the, the three girls uh, beside him, uh, Riley Gaines being one of them. Uh, Riley's become a friend. She's, she's speaking out on the Save Women's Sports issue. Um, one thing that, that David Mahan, our policy director, likes to point out to folks, uh, especially Ohioans, is we're, we're pushing this bill right now uh, in, in Ohio to get the Save Women's uh, Sports bill passed. Uh, to protect girls from being forced to compete against boys in K-12 and higher education. Uh, the meat right before that 
that, that famous picture. I think that picture was, that, that meet happened in Georgia. The meet right before that where William Thomas qualified to get there happened in Akron, right? So if, it, if, if, if we had protected girls' sports here, that wouldn't have happened. Riley wouldn't have been, been forced to do that. And, that's, and, and Ohio is still allowing this to happen today, which is why we have to pass the Save Women's Sports Bill. And why we, we, feel, we feel like we have the opportunity to, to get that done. Uh, this year. The other thing, just real briefly, I wanted to tell you, you know, it, it's not just about women's sports, it's also about women's private spaces, right? And, and yes. Women's facilities. Yes. Uh, we actually just, just yesterday had a, uh, an awful court decision come down at, from Xenia, Ohio, in Greene County, where um, a, a male who identified as a woman uh, was, after swimming in the pool, going into the girls' bathroom and changing and being completely nude uh, and actually staring at the young girls that were in there. Um, he was actually charged for indecent exposure. He claimed to be a woman. He was charged for indecent exposure, though, because he was completely naked. And I, I tell you, this is the absurdity we're dealing with today. The judge found him not guilty because um, his, his stomach covered his genitalia. And so he was not guilty because of that. And, and this is why good public policy matters and why good elected officials matter. Why we need to be in a place to say explicitly, because these girls have been traumatized by this experience. Um, so, Betsy, I, I do, you, you touched on something there as well, though, uh, talking about higher education. And you have a whole chapter in, in your book on higher education. Uh, not, not just on you know, what, what's being taught in the schools, but the way, we, the way our culture and, and really the K-12 system thinks about higher education today. What's... What's broken about the way Americans think about higher education today? Well, I think that uh, higher education is actually as ripe for reform and, um, and change as the K-12 world is. And I think that really came into focus again in a major way through the pandemic when many of the higher ed institutions did not uh, actually respond in ways that really compelled students to um, want to go and take out a bunch of student loans and student debt to seek an education that had them sitting in uh, apartment buildings, um, go, you know, watching online classes. Um, I, I think that uh, there is as much problem in the higher ed world as in the K-12 world, I mean, they're, they're all, it's kind of a continuum of, of each other. And, um, and, I, and we did a lot of work to try to change the framework to allow for more creativity in higher ed providers through the accreditation process. I'm somewhat optimistic we're going to see the fruits of that in the not-too-distant future. But um, we're also seeing it, frankly, in the way young people are making different decisions now and different calculations about the wisdom of pursuing a four-year uh, institution versus some career uh, and technical education opportunities. And um, Lieutenant Governor and I were talking about that a little bit before the event this evening about the real, um, you know, groundswell in Ohio for opportunities in uh, post K-12 education that require some additional education, but not a four-year degree. And uh, we know from an employer standpoint that there are 
literally millions of jobs that can be filled with, uh, with some kind of additional education but not uh, requiring a four-year degree. We're also seeing a lot of employers reevaluating their uh, descriptions for um, open positions and removing the requirement for bachelor's degrees if they don't actually require a bachelor degree level of education. So I think there's, there's going to be a lot more pressure on higher ed institutions to make changes themselves. There's some optimism that they will do so more willingly than uh, the K-12 system has because it is, it is a more um, you know, open and, and slightly more competitive environment. I think that will probably be the case, but um, there's, you know, the, the, the jury's still out on that. So, so two last questions here for you. You know, first and foremost, <laughs> you're sitting in a room full of governing authorities, right? Yes. People that, that I also think have pretty thick skin, right? So I, they're, they're a CCB crowd, they're, they're pretty tough. Uh, you have, you've been in this, this fight for a while now. Mm -hmm. What are, what are the things that you, that you always want to say to a group of people that when, when they're looking at this issue? What do we need to be doing? What, what, are the, what are the things that we can be doing today to be helping kids through this crisis uh, that they're facing in, in schools right now? Well, Aaron, I think you articulated it very well um, in your remarks a few moments ago. Uh, I think having that for children and families in Ohio, Having uh, individuals like all of you in this room committed to supporting elected officials that will cast votes that are sometimes difficult, but that are the right thing for families and for their future and for children's futures, and uh, and having their back and 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 you know being um, fearless and bold about uh, not only supporting that uh, financially, but also supporting that verbally with friends and neighbors. I know sometimes it's hard to get into conversations with people who, are, who don't see things uh, exactly the same way that you do, but, um, but I know that, uh, well, we, we all have the best, uh, the best book in the world to teach us how to do that in a uh, loving and grace-filled way, and, um, and, and I, I just uh, encourage you to, to stay strong and not, uh, you know, not to give up and or uh, be faint of heart in any way um, because you are, you are certainly doing the Lord's work. And, and last but not least, I'm, I'm, we, we wouldn't be uh, doing our job at CCB <coughs> if we didn't ask. We pray for you. you have, you've stuck your neck out on the line multiple times on this issue. Mm. How can we as the body of Christ be um, I would say probably more for protection on my family, just broadly. It's, you know, the attacks that I take, I, they don't bother me because I, you know, I'm kind of like, it was always more, more hurtful to my husband, Dick, and to my children to see and hear things um, said about me. And I, the, the same is still true. I mean, it's, you know, the... There's, 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 not, there's not an end to that in any way. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Narrative, presented by CCV and produced by Wessler Media. If you found today's episode insightful, leave us a review or rating and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We're your hosts, Mike Andrews, Aaron Bear, and David Mahan, and we'll see you next time on The Narrative.